Amen. John chapter 21, starting at verse 18, it says, Most surely I say to you, this is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to the Apostle Peter, When you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he, Peter, would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. It's interesting the diversity that exists within the body of Christ. Just to look at all of us sitting here right now and how much more so on a Sunday morning when the place is full. Everybody, there's, well, there's just differences in everybody, but there's also that similarity between us all. I was kind of thinking of my family when I was thinking of this concept, uh, this group of people who I thought we were finishing, finished assembling about 30 years ago, but the kids have gone out, and now they're adding to the horde. But nonetheless, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing just to see your family grow. And then the grandchildren, I've got two grandchildren living with me right now as my son-in-law is out in the field as he is in the army. But this is what we call the Ursioli family, although they don't all have the same last name anymore. I have personally observed this family, and what really stands out is definitely our similarities, but even the differences that we all have. We have all the same last names as far as my wife, myself, and my children. Came Children, all four of them, obviously, came from the same parents. And my wife and I, the two of us, we have been made one. But then there are the in-laws, the sons-in-laws, and the grandkids, and there's exterior differences there. But again, inside, they're all precious in the sight of the Lord. They're precious in the sight of their grandfather. But we do rejoice in the differences. I rejoice in the differences between myself and my wife. It'd be kind of a bummer if we were both bald. I'm glad we don't both have lousy teeth as well. My children, they're all different personality-wise as well. They're all unique in that way. And even the twins are so different. I don't need to look at them. I just need to listen to them. And I know that which one is, is which. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, Let us make man, let us make mankind in our image, according to our likeness. Let him have dominion over the fish of the seas, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God's got a plan. He's going to create mankind, and he's going to make the differences, but it's all for his single purposes. Now, we understand and we know today that in the body of Christ, it's for his purpose of salvation. Everything works together for the good, and the good that God wants to achieve in the lives of men and women today is their salvation. Now, in order to achieve that, there's the teaching and training that discipleship is. And really, that's what's going through the lives of Peter and the apostles, especially of those who went back to go fishing and that there's still lessons to be learned. The Holy Spirit has yet to be sent, but God is preparing them for this great work that he's going to do. And again, once more, we've got this insignificant country, insignificant people, these men who Jesus taught and trained for some three years, and they've seemed to pretty much have given up and gone back to the old life. And so we see there's similarities, but there's differences as well. 
So as God has called us and God has communion with us, as God has created us in his image, as God desires to have fellowship with us, it's all for his purposes. And so God, he's given us his authority. He's given us his word. He's given us his word that we would go forth and use it to create disciples, that we would spend our time, our energies, and our efforts in doing so. And so one of the things that we have to ask ourselves here at Calvary Chapel, Ontario, but really the church needs to ask even today, are we achieving that purpose? Are we drawing crowds or are we making disciples? I have a great responsibility and one day God's going to call me home and I will stand before him and I'll give an account of him of what I did with the people that he gave me and the word that he called me in. Did I spend my time teaching and training people? Or was it for my own satisfaction, for those who use it for their own satisfaction? I just would not want to stand before a holy God having have done that. But I want to be counted faithful in the sight of God. And the only way that I can be faithful in the sight of God is to be faithful in the word of God during my time here. And so we have God who came in a body such as ours so that we will one day inhabit a body such as his and that we will become as he is right now, not becoming God, but we will receive that spiritual body that will no longer suffer pain, that we will be one in heaven, just as in the church we are one here on earth. A diversity of people, but similar in that regard. Similar in that regard that God has created us body, soul, and spirit, and it's the spirit that sets us apart from animals and any other creation and that we have spirit, and the spirit is that which we have communion with the Lord, that we are able to have intimate fellowship with God because of that element of our makeup, which is spirit. It was that which was formerly dead, we see in Ephesians chapter 2, and was we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. It was the Lord who made us alive, and as we became alive, we now have this unique fellowship in him. So there's this diversity, and this diversity, if you know, apart from Christ, look what's going on in the world today. Diversity is tearing this country apart because it's diversity apart from the Holy Spirit. They want unity, they speak of unity, but man in his flesh is always going to seek to exalt himself over somebody else, and he'll use the exterior differences that he sees to do it. But that's not to be so in the body of Christ. Matter of fact, if you just turn a couple pages to the right in Acts chapter 2, you see in that upper room when the Holy Spirit fell upon the disciples that were there, there were people from all over the known world. In verse 8 of chapter 2 it says, And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia and Judah and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia... Uh, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Lydia or Libya, according to uh, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, and we hear them speaking in our own tongue the wonderful works of God. Well, this is just a little snapshot on what the church is to be. This is a worldwide ministry where you have a diversity of people, you have a diversity of looks and a diversity of backgrounds and and classes, and ethnicities, and all of these things, but there's that unifying presence of Christ that exists in all of our lives, or at least all of the church. And the church 
the church will be its most productive when we thrive in our variety being unified as one. It's the team concept. Before I came over, I turned on the TV. Actually, I turned on the internet, and I was looking at the first college game of the year, at least the first one that I've seen of the year. These two college teams, Ohio State and Indiana, they were going at it. They were just starting, and they weren't looking really that unified. And what I mean by that is first game of the season. Some of these people are first time, first year on the team, and so they haven't been tweaked into the team concept yet, or at least knowing their parts. And it's going to take some time, but after a while, as every member is doing his part, everybody with football terminology, everybody does his job out there, then you're going to start seeing some teams that will rise to the top. And it's the same thing within the body of Christ. And the question in the body of Christ is, are you doing your job out there? Are you fulfilling what God has called you to do? Well, how do I know what God has called you to do? Well, you know what God has called you to do when you're able to identify what God has gifted you to do. And as every member of the body of Christ is doing what God has gifted it to do, there's going to be a diversity, but there's going to be a unifying factor in that. That when we come into the body of Christ, we rejoice in this unity and the productivity that comes from unity. And so here we're going to see this difference. Go ahead, if you've turned over to Acts, turn back to John 21. We're going to see this diversity even between these two men, Peter and John. So in verse 18, we see a contrast, first looking at Peter, between the differences of youth and age. As far as youth, and when I say youth and age, I want to look more at maturity and immaturity. Peter at this time has been very immature in the things that he has said he was going to do and his interpretation of things to such a degree that it's brought him to despair where seemingly he seems to have given up and gone back to the old life. Again, verse 18, Most surely I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wish. Well, that was pretty much a perfect picture of the apostle Peter. He pretty much said what he thought and did what he wanted. Peter's life, well, Peter's life, he had this lack of experience, not understanding exactly what the Lord was doing. He came across as being foolish from time to time. He had passions, but they were undisciplined, and they needed to be challenged. And when that happened, well, we know that Peter failed. He failed in his promise to even go and die with the Lord or die for the Lord, even denying the Lord, even before a young servant girl. Now to the positives of youth, there are the dreams and energies that make up for the aged and the hardened. It's that element that is necessary in the body of Christ for us to direct them, but also for us to be inspired by them, to be inspired by the energy, to be inspired by just the inspiration of, of, of not holding back. And what I mean by that is we can so easily become old wineskins. You know what, we've, we've, and I can, uh, I'm the poster child for this. You know, we've done that before, or we've tried that before, or yeah, well, that at one time that worked, but I'm not sure it's going to work. But, but just to have that, that fresh inspiration of new blood, if you will. Yeah, immaturity that needs to be directed, but also immaturity that will knock the more mature back into the track that we need to be on. 
In Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 9 through 10, it says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these God will bring you into judgment. Therefore, remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. So he's telling him to use those things to use that vigor of of the youth, but keep in mind what the desires of the Lord are for you. But it's essential that in a body where there's a diversity, that the youth be valued in it. In Timothy, 1 Timothy, now keep in mind what was going on in the Apostle Paul's life. And I would imagine had to be a frustration to him, but it was a learning experience to him. There you have the Apostle Paul. Remember on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, he's breathing threats towards the church. This isn't right. This isn't how things are supposed to be. He's seeing this starting to grow. He's not happy about it. He's taking believers and he's imprisoning them. And later on we see that some have even died because of this. Here's a man with passion, but although his passion is misdirected, his passion is genuine. He thought he was really doing God's will and doing God's service. And so what did God do? God arrested his heart, but also arrested that passion on the road to Damascus. And he changed him, he taught him, he trained him, he prepared him, and then he used him. And then he, Acts chapter 13, the Holy Spirit said, separate to me now Barnabas and Paul for the work to which I have called them. And so they're going on their first missionary journey. And they take a group of guys with them, and one of the people they take with them is John Mark. Now John Mark, they had to have seen something in this young man that would cause them to say, well, this man would be valuable for us in the work of ministry. But what had happened? Things got hard. Things got difficult. We're not told exactly what happened, but John Mark bailed out on them in the midst of ministry. He went home. He left. Well, a man such as the Apostle Paul, and you see this at the end of Acts chapter 15, he's got no patience for such things. Because remember, Paul, Paul's focused and Paul's driven. And you know what? If Mark doesn't want to be with us, matter of fact, he didn't want to be with us, he bailed on us, then I'm not using him anymore. Well, remember Barnabas. Who's Barnabas? He's the son of encouragement. He's of the mindset, no, you know what? This is a project. We're disciplers. We need to enter into this man's life and train him up and see him used. And Paul argued against that, and the dissension was so great that they separated themselves. Barnabas went off with John Mark and if you look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, you'll see that he was, uh, he was successful in his discipleship with the young man. Paul, so Paul went off with Silas. But what's the first thing that happens as, he in, as we enter into chapter 16? If you blow off a John Mark, then God's going to bring a timid Timothy into your life. And if you read the beginning of Paul's epistles to Timothy, he's always trying to push Timothy forward. Timothy was not a man bold, and he seemed to be very intimidated by those who were older than him, which would be a cultural thing and be a natural thing. But, God, but Paul wants him to understand that he's a man who is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he needs to fulfill his ministry. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 12 to 16, it says, Let no one despise your youth. Don't let anybody look down their nose at you because you're young. But be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity, till I come. Give attention to the reading, to the exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect. Now, the only reason you tell somebody not to neglect the gift that is in them is because they were neglecting the gift that was in them. 
But verse 14, do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy. It was recognized by the elders with the laying in the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all, that you'd be an example to everybody. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who will hear you. God will do a great work through you. And so you see what God had done in this young man Timothy's life. Tradition, we don't know because the Bible doesn't say, but tradition tells us that Timothy was martyred for his faith. He was willing to stand up for what he believed in. And Paul had died previously, but if you could talk to Paul, you'd tell Paul, it worked. It worked. Your discipleship was not in vain. Barnabas' discipleship was not in vain. Coming back to John, Jesus' discipleship to Peter, we know, and we'll see this in a minute, is not in vain as well. God's discipleship into your life and through your life into those who are less mature than you is not in vain as well. In 2 Timothy, Paul's encouraging Timothy in chapter 2, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me amongst many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so we have this line of maturity that is vein of maturity that is to flow through the church where those who are more mature speak to the less mature. Well, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. But just take what you know and give it to somebody who does not know what you know. Find somebody less mature than you and see that person encouraged and built up in the body of Christ. Now, the Lord also speaks to the apostle Peter about the days when he will become mature. In verse 18, the last part, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. What the Lord is speaking of here is the death of the apostle Peter. Now again, the Bible doesn't say, but tradition tells us that Peter was to be crucified in Rome. When he was in Rome, he was in prison. He was a man, obviously, as we'll see, who was bold in sharing his faith. But you see, when he was filled with the Holy Spirit, he understood that it was all for Jesus. And when he was faced with opposition, he continued to push forward to the time when he was arrested and crucified. Again, tradition tells us that he says that he was not worthy to be crucified as the Lord was crucified. And in turn, he was crucified hanging upside down, which kind of sounds like an extreme that Peter would go to. But nonetheless, we just see the heart of the man. In John chapter 13, verse 36, Jesus said, Simon, or Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. And indeed, Peter did follow him afterwards. Verse 19, this he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. So Jesus qualifies that Peter's death as all of our afflictions are not for waste. Now, I've been trying to figure this one out because here we are a week ago, and I write devotions that I post on Facebook every day. I follow the one-year Bible, and the one-year Bible is in the book of Job. 
And so I'm writing devotions in the book of Job, and my mouth is killing me because I have an infection in my mouth. And I'm thinking, why, Lord? As I'm writing down on paper, not to question God, but to understand that trials are a natural part of our Christian life and how God uses them to refine us and to grow them, grow us. But then they're coming upon me, and it's like, why, Lord? God's got plans, and God's got purpose in all the afflictions that we experience. And I've got just a short list, again, another one of those short, in, in, inconclusive lists, but nonetheless, some valuable points that we would all do well to consider as we're going through the trials that are natural to this life. And the first one is really number one. We see it again here in verse 19. And he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. Our trials are designed to glorify God. How do they glorify God? As you're trusting God in the midst of your trial, as you're still seeking the Lord. And the very first person that needs to be convinced of this is you. Because as you mature in trials, which we are told in the book of James, the first person that needs to glean from this is you. To understand that as you're going through this, you're not falling apart as you used to fall apart. You're not going to pieces, but you're understanding, and again, this can be a hard thing to understand, but you're understanding that God is doing something here, even in something that seems to be so insignificant as a toothache or whatever else that we go through, or even, obviously, the major things, but that God is going to be glorified. One of the things in the, the book of Job, one of his friends said, you know, you, you would give counsel to people as they were going through hard times. He says, now it's come upon you, and you don't know what to do or what to say. And I can relate to that reality because it's so easy to point at somebody else and say, you know what, bro? All things work together for the good. <laughs> you got to rise out of Bob on that one. And, and, you know, we can kind of blow people off when we do that. But then it happens to us, and is that still good enough? It comes to us, and we wonder what's going on. Well, the first thing, God, God uses these things to glorify himself, that you would see the trust that you're able now to place in God, and others would see that trust as well. Secondly, as we go through trials, as we go through afflictions, they exhibit the power and the faithfulness of God, and that every trial... Every trial that I've ever had, God has delivered me from it. I'm still here. And then one day there is going to be the trial either of accident or sickness or just old age. I'm going to go to be with the Lord, and God's going to deliver me from that one as well. And as God delivers me from the ultimate, that is death, then what are we really concerned about? Why would it not then be all for Jesus Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 11, Paul experiencing the trials of ministry, realizing that he's nothing but an earthen vessel. But he says, as an earthen vessel, we're hard-pressed on every side, but he's come to the understanding, but you know what? We've never been crushed. We are perplexed. We don't always understand everything that's going on, but we're not in despair. Why? It's insinuated that he trusts. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Although there's the persecution of the world, God has never forsaken us. Struck down, but never destroyed. Why? Because that earthen vessel, well, it's not about the earthen vessel. It's about what's contained in the earthen vessel. That's where the value is. Because 
we are always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. He's basically saying we carry about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body, that it would be poured out from this earthen vessel. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that we're always dying to ourselves, that the life of Jesus also may be manifest or revealed in our mortal flesh. Thirdly, the afflictions we suffer, they cause us to seek God in prayer. Once again, when has been the most impassioned prayer in your life, the times of impassioned prayer in your life? It's either been, because I speak from experience, it's either been when you are in the midst of a trial or a loved one has been going through something pretty serious in their lives. There's nothing that will drive you to your knees faster and keep you there longer than going through a trial. Just think, just think, if we just, we're all skipping down the yellow brick road to heaven and nothing bad ever, you know, and you've heard some people preach this false doctrine that nothing bad happens to a born-again believer, would your focus truly be with a passion before the throne of God? Probably not. You'd probably grow very lackadaisical in your Christian faith. And so in that, you see the value of the prayer chain that we just, the people that we just prayed for. You see the reality of things that are going on in people's lives. I even heard the groan from you when we prayed for the one girl who had just gotten married a few months ago and now has been diagnosed with breast cancer. Lord, do some, Lord, do a work in there, especially as older people. I remember those days and having so much uh, of experiences of life before and now to have to deal with something like this. We passionately come before the Lord. And so the afflictions that you experience, they're for those purposes. Where did Jonah seek the Lord out? It was from the midst of the whale, or the big fish. Fourthly, our afflictions, they test and exhibit our sincerity, the sincerity of our faith. How many people do you know entered into some sort of affliction, some sort of trial, and you never saw them again? That's always been an amazing concept in the church that I've seen. People, as they're in church and serving God, and then whatever happened to, to Fred? Well, you know, Fred, he fell into this hard thing and this issue happened and whatnot. Well, how come Fred's not here every time the doors are open? How come Fred's no longer passionately seeking the Lord? We can become so full of ourselves. And you could ask Peter here the same thing. Peter, what are you doing going fishing? You should be at the foot of the Lord asking for his grace and asking for his mercy because you know that's how he is. In Proverbs 17.3, it says, The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. And then fifthly, our afflictions, they humble us, they purify us, they exercise our patience, but they further the gospel. They're for the purpose of furthering the gospel. And I think we kind of got a, a secular thing going on here because then it leads you right back to number one. They're for the glory of God. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, Paul said, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Read through Philippians and you'll see the things that happened to the Apostle Paul. Now we see the difference here as I started out with that concept, the difference of Peter and John between their personalities and how God used this and using them for the work of ministry for his call. So you've got Peter. Peter is a man of action. He's always first to speak. If there's an ear that needs to be cut off, Peter's your guy. Remember, he cut off Malchus's ear. He's quick to yield the sword. He's just quick to do whatever needs to be done. 
there's good raw material in that. And the Lord obviously saw that in the Apostle Peter. It just needed to be refined and he needed a filling of the Holy Spirit. But Peter, for the most part, was act now and think later. Even in verse 7, we see just, not that this is a bad thing, but we see a picture of it. It says in verse 7, it says, Therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. That's just typical Peter. He's just got that passion, and again, act now, think later. Not that that's a bad thing, but you just see the, the dynamic of his personality. Now the Apostle John, on the other part, on the other hand, Apostle John seems to be a man of thought. John does not mention himself directly, first person, in the gospel, but many times he does speak of himself, and so we get a picture of him. We never see him with a sword. He's, as far as I know, he's got no ear collection. He, he was one, and as Peter was swimming off, it says in verse 8, but the other disciples, and we know John was part of the sons of Zebedee, they were part of this group. The other disciples came in with the little boat, for they were not far from land, with 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. What happens if they all go jumping out of the boat and swimming to the shore and the fish get away? And so there's this element of thinking things through and this element of responsibility. And Peter, God took his giftings and abilities, refined them, and used them according to his will and for his glory. Jesus told Peter that if he would follow him, and that's why he's repeating the command here, that he would make him a fisher of men. And so he's not saying, come on, Peter, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. But in saying to Peter, follow me, Peter is reminded of his purpose. Peter got it. Peter came to that understanding. The Lord restored him without a doubt, but Peter came to him. Now, in Acts chapter 1, you can look at the apostles laying on hands of this man Malchus, who they, they replaced Judas with. Was that really the will of the Lord? Did they act out of turn? The Lord had told them to go back to Jerusalem and to wait, and they did this, and so there's arguments on both sides. I'm sure Malchus was used mightily by the Lord. We just don't hear about it in the Scripture. But Peter was leading them in that first chapter. And if you look in that first chapter, he was leading them in the word of God. He was doing exactly what was necessary when the Lord tells us to wait. And so we're starting to see a change in this man, Peter. And then in Acts chapter 2, you see the dynamic that is beyond this world. Peter now is a completely changed man. He is now a man who is filled with the Holy Spirit. So he was missing something before, not of his own doing or his own fault, the Holy Spirit, but he did have the Word of God. But then we see the perfect joining together of the Word of God and a man filled with the Holy Spirit. And what does Peter do right away? He stands up and he preaches the Word, and about 3,000 people get saved. Can you imagine? All at once, 3,000 people. Now, there, there were no signs put out for a crusade. This, these people were just going to the temple as they always did. I, I would imagine there was a group of them that probably never even heard of the gospel or heard of the Lord. But now as they do, they're cut to the heart, and 3,000 people get saved. And then a little bit later on in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, it says, However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. That's just the men. 5,000 people. Now all of a sudden, 8,000 people got saved. This is a man who was called to be a fisherman. He was called to be an evangelist. Now in 
Acts chapter 15 on our Wednesday morning. We have a Wednesday morning men's study here at 6, 6 we meet at 6.30. We're going through the book of Acts, and, and we see that it seems to be James to be, now this isn't James the Apostle James, this is James the Lord's brother who wrote the epistle of James. He seems to be the leader within the church. And you can wonder, well, what happened here? Well, Peter, in essence, when they were electing a leader, now I'm just paraphrasing here, but he knew he was an evangelist. He knew that he was to go out on the road and to be a fisher of men. And I believe that this was James' responsibility to lead that church as that jumping off point for the work that God wanted to do. Now, Peter turns, if you will, and points to John, verse 20. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. Well, we've done the homework on that in previous lessons. We know this to be the Apostle John the one whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter seeing him and said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is it to you? You, as if he's getting in his face here, you follow me. And again, even as I read that, I'm thinking Peter's calling you be a fisher of men. But then we can look back Well, what was the difference with John? Again, these guys, they seemed to be business partners before Christ called them. They spent time with Christ. They spent the same amount of time, for the most part, with the Lord. They were always there. They were part of the inner circle who got to see some pretty amazing things. But Jesus here seems to have a little bit different ministry for John than he had for the apostle Peter. Now, John was a fisherman as well, but what was he doing when he was first called? We see that in the book of Matthew, chapter 4, verse 21. It says, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John. This would be the apostle John, his brother. In the boat was Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Peter was out there catching fish. John, behind the scenes, he's mending nets. John, John lived the longest of the apostles, building and strengthening the church through discipleship. He was the one who would, who, who would be there to strengthen people when, when, when issues were coming into the church. We see this in his epistles. He addressed the issues because he wanted the church to be strong. When he's looking at believers, he wanted their joy to be full. And that's one of the main themes of the uh, epistle of 1 John. And so he's wanting a strong church. And now he did work of evangelists, obviously, in Peter, as we see Peter's epistles. He did work of discipleship as well. But we need to see how God uses these giftings side by side for the greater good. Now, myself, I do the work of an evangelist, but I'm not an evangelist. I've got a heart and I've got a passion for people to learn God's word. I I really feel like my ministry is fulfilled when people know and understand the word of God. That's why I do what I do as far as teaching verse by verse in the Bible. That's why we still do, you know, Sunday night's not all that well attended, but we continue to go, go for it in the evening services. And again, we're going to be starting up this coming Sunday night in Second Kings because I have a passion for people to know, for believers to know the Word of God. I have a passion that people get saved, don't get me wrong, but I know the focal point of what my calling is. And so you've got Peter and John, two different men who God uses side by side to fulfill his purposes. Verse 23, 
Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? Now we have here the last recorded words of Christ in John's gospel. A call to discipleship. In contrast, look at the first words of Christ recorded by John. If you turn back in your Bible, it's good to connect these to get an understanding of the gospel as a whole, but also John's purposes. If we look back at John chapter 1, verse 38, when Jesus turned, now I want to focus upon the Lord's words. Jesus turned and seeing them follow him, said to them, what do you seek? And then in verse 39, Jesus' recorded words are, come and see. And then in verse 43, it says, follow me. That's how it started, and that's how it's ending. And so, in essence, you've got in the first chapter, you've got the introduction to Jesus Christ by the Apostle John. But then you have Jesus, follow me. And then in chapters 1, verse 44, all the way through to chapter 21, verse 21, is why we should follow the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 22, we have a reminder here. How are we to follow Jesus Christ? Let's turn over to Luke chapter 9, and we'll we'll go ahead and close from there, but turn over to Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Then he said to them all, then Jesus said to all of his disciples here, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And so that's what come after me, or if anybody desires to follow Jesus. Verse 24, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? So what are we to do? We're to deny ourselves. We're to keep ourselves from sin, that we would not disqualify ourselves. We are not to live our life contrary to the word of God. We are to keep out of our lives that which will separate us from a relationship with God. We are to walk as Jesus walked. He set the example. Secondly, we are to take up our cross. Well, if you recall, the cross that Jesus took, it was weighed down by the sins of the world. He was the only one who was able to bear that cross. Nobody else could be hung on the cross, pay the price for the sins of the world. That was Christ's cross. It was Christ's cross that we were all, all of our sins were nailed to. But each of us has a cross to bear as well. And it's a cross that you are able to bear. Now, what is nailed upon our cross? Our dreams, our aspirations, our desires, whatever it might be, our will, that is contrary to what God has for us. It's there that we crucify We crucify these things for the greater good of what God has for us. And so our cross is to deny ourselves. Well, it's to deny the desires of our heart, again, as I said, that are contrary to God. So denying self was to the negative. This is what we are supposed to do as far as take up our cross. I take up my cross daily, that I would step outside of my comfort zone that I would do what God desires rather than what I desire. It's what the Apostle Paul was saying in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. Uh, the old man, the old man's dead and he's gone. I've been crucified with Christ. That 
it's Christ who lives with me, that I no longer live for myself. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I live, but Christ who lives within me. And this life I live in the flesh, he's speaking of his imperfections, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. So what Paul is saying, in essence, if we compare that to Luke, is that I'm only able to take up my cross because Christ has first taken up the cross to which my sins were nailed to. Elizabeth Elliot said, So let us carry the cross every day, not in the sense of something we hate to do, but in the sense of something which God is asking us to do and which we therefore determine to do with joy. And then lastly, we are to follow him, to follow Jesus' words and manner of living. And those who follow him, I guarantee you, if you do, you'll have followers of your own as you point people to Christ as you point people to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I mean by that is as you're following the Lord, as you're growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to have people looking to you as somebody more mature that you're able to see grow in the knowledge of Christ as well. The church, church isn't about big buildings and entertainment and all of those things. The church is a place to come where we learn about Christ. And we learn about what it is to live a Christian life. And as we learn these things, we pass them on. As a man, the first person I need to pass it on is to my wife. And then I need to pass it on to my children. And now we're in the process of grandchildren and so on and so forth. It needs to happen outside the realm of the family also. It needs to happen in the body of Christ that God would bring the immature here. Because it can be so easy to blow off the immature. Because the immature... They demand something from you. They demand sacrifice. They demand work. But it's those people who we should have a desire for that they would enter into the body of Christ and the body of Christ would embrace them and that they would get it, that they would grow, that they would enter in and they would come to fruition in their Christian life. Father, once again, we just thank you that you have given us your word. And as you have given us your word, it's for your reasons and your purposes. And I pray, Father, that we would be a people who are sold out to those things. And so, Father, I just pray that, Lord, as we look at our calendar, we look at our bulletin, are they filled with things that are designed to see people grow in the knowledge of who you are, to see people prepared for the work of ministry? And I pray, Father, that that each member of this church would take possession Take possession, Lord, of this body and take possession, Father, of what they've been called to do. And Lord, they would see it. They would see it come to fruition. Lord, that's my job. My job is to see people be able to thrive in the ministry to which you have called them. I pray, Father, that we would see that come to pass in a way, Lord, that glorifies your holy name. And so, Lord, we look back at Peter and John and we see that they were faithful, Lord, and you used that in mighty ways throughout the centuries. Father, I pray that our work would not grow or would not go unrewarded as well as far as we would have the reward of seeing people grow in the knowledge of who you are. So, Father, we just thank you for tonight. We pray that you would bless us. Watch over us as we leave this place, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We all stand, please. Sunday, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews, continuing on in our our study of Hebrews, and then Sunday night, we're finished with Way of the Master, and we're going to be moving forward in 2 Kings. We left off at 1 Kings about a year ago, so we'll be picking up where we left off. Again, my intent is to finish the Bible. Um, We have 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. 
Thursday or on uh, yeah on Thursday nights. We didn't finish John tonight, so the bulletin's going to be wrong, Rose. That's Rosemary's fault. Um, but we're going to be in the uh, book of Jeremiah. We finished Jeremiah and Lamentations. And again, my goal is, no, we're not done by any stretch of the imagination. But my goal is, as a church, we can say that Calvary Chapel, Ontario, although everybody wasn't there for every study, but nonetheless, we've been through the Bible. And then after that, we'll start over. God bless you guys. <laughs>